Welcome to the Rally Point Podcast, where we equip you to support others. I'm Bobby Jackson. And I'm Noah Throw. And today we're going to be talking about what to do when we see somebody experiencing depression or suicidal thoughts. Bobby and I will be talking with a friend who is also the area expert about what steps we can take and what we can be aware of as we intervene for people and what we can do before and after crisis situations to create healthy and supportive communities. Before we get started, I want to make a really quick note that this episode is not meant to be comprehensive licensed counseling or legal advice. Rather, it is basic advice that is meant to be helpful in guiding your conversations with others. If you're a leader who's working with hurting people, it is essential that you remain up to date with the current laws in your state because they're going to be different from the ones in ours and the resources that are available to you. Yeah, uh, this is a a heavy topic today. Um, It's a significant, really important topic for us to be talking about. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death overall in the lives of people, claiming nearly 48,000 lives a year. Suicide is actually the second leading cause of death amongst individuals between the ages of 10 and 34, and the fourth leading cause amongst people between the ages of 35 and 54. Yeah, and serving in ministry, being in any community, this is something that unfortunately becomes a part of the conversation because it's so widespread. And you know, Bobby and I have, in our personal lives and, and doing ministry work, have met with people who are depressed and dealing with that in various ways, who have had suicidal thoughts. And sadly, we've had to be a part of, of uh, some of those moments where they haven't been able to escape from those crisis situations. And so it's it's tough. It's hard, and we just wanted to say that you know this episode is meant as a as a resource to talk about what we can do in those situations to to hopefully prevent things like that from happening. So that being said, on this episode, we're going to be talking about some pretty heavy stuff. If that makes you nervous. Feel free to pause and grab somebody else you trust, a friend, a parent, a partner, and listen with them. If you feel vulnerable to certain emotional triggers, make sure you have some support system set up before you keep going and. If this conversation becomes too difficult to listen to, we totally understand. Feel free to pause, turn us off, and come back later. With that being said, uh, we'd like to welcome Bernadette May to the show. Bernadette May, or Bernie, as she likes to go by, is the Executive Director for Family Service Association of the Greater Elgin Area, or FSA, where she's been overseeing the daily operations of the Community Mental Health Center since September of 2017. FSA has many roles, but one of them is providing the suicide assessments for all the minors in Kane County, Illinois, who are on Medicaid, who are uninsured, or who are underinsured. And that's a population coverage of about a half million people. Prior to that, she served as the clinical director at FSA for five years. She received her bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of North Dakota in 1999, and then went on to obtain her master's in social work from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 2002, and she's worked in many different capacities in the mental health field for the last 22 years. And so we are so grateful to have her on today. So Bernie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me and taking on this important topic. I do want to also say thanks to the listeners who are willing to be here and to talk about this and to support people through these tough moments. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Bernie, thanks so much for coming on. We we appreciate what you um, have to offer. But before we get into the main conversation today, we're just curious, could you give us a little snapshot of what you've done in those past uh, 20 or so years of mental health work and how you found yourself at FSA? My uh, former supervisor really liked to say that I have a sorted work history. So um, <laughs> it, <laughs> it's, it's fun and kind of um, snakes through different areas of mental health. But since the time that I became a social worker, I've actually worked in mental health that entire time. But that ranges anywhere from helping adults with chronic mental illnesses to develop work skills uh, to private practice counseling, which I did for a period of time, and emergency crisis work where I did overnights in the emergency rooms. I also like to joke that my very best mental health training was when I was a blackjack dealer back in college. I learned a whole lot from those days. And So how did you go from blackjack dealer to uh, these other uh, less impressive career? Um... Uh, well, I, I mental health really for me was just fascinating in that it's super intriguing to me that our biology can impact us in such a strong way and that that is mitigated by the factors all around us and the systems that we interact with. And so that systemic approach is really what attracted me to social work and then implementing that into a mental health capacity. So if you think systems, that is where, I guess, in a leadership role is attractive to me because this is where we can work to impact the systems that can then better support the humans that we serve. Uh, Yeah. So can you help us to understand what we talked a little bit about what FSA does, but help us to understand a little bit more in detail. What what does it mean to provide <laughs> mental health services for a county? Like that that seems that's a little generic and 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 unclear so far. Could you help us understand a little bit more about what you what you all do there? Sure, but we certainly don't work in a vacuum. So I think it's important to say that while we do provide those services, we do that under the grace of many many partners that we work together with in our communities. So our agency primarily focuses on children and adolescents and their families. And like I said, we do that through a system lens. So we look at all the systems that impact youth. We're very involved with schools, with the justice system. We're involved with the child welfare system. And then even when we work with kids, we do that through like their family systems, as well as their friends and any type of pro-social activities that they might be involved in. So We have many, many partners in our process of accomplishing that, but our individual services Mm. actually range from individual therapy. We have a mental health juvenile justice program in which Mm -hmm. we do like intensive case management with kids. We have therapeutic mentoring. We work one-on-one with youth to help them achieve their goals in that way. Our school-based mental health program, we're in 20 different schools in Kane County where we work together with the schools to help kids to achieve their goals. And then we also work with the families after school hours in that program. Mm-hmm. And then the program we're kind of here more to talk about today is our, our crisis programs where we cover all of Kendall County and respond 24-7 to things that come up. So yeah. let's let's narrow it down to help us to understand. Let's, let's just start from the beginning of a maybe a listener's experience. How would somebody identify an emergency situation? What does it look like? What are the factors? What are the signs and symptoms? 
I think oftentimes when we talk about crisis, people think of those really significant ones of suicidality mm-hmm. or homicidality. Uh, mm-hmm. Those are significant and absolutely important to intervene in. Um, and But there's other ways to look at potentially dangerous behavior as well, especially when you're talking about young people. Sometimes that um, can be the passive statements of, you know, nobody's going to care if I'm here or not anyway, or things aren't just working out, like I just don't want to be a part of this anymore. You'll hear those type of comments that might come from young people. Mm. Or we can sometimes see the complete opposite of that, where people are extremely dysregulated is the term we use in my field. But uh, that kind of means people's emotions are just all over the place. You go one moment from being happy to another to crying to 10 seconds later, they're very angry about something. Mm. Those, I think, are important things to also look for, particularly Mm. when you're talking about young people. Impulsivity is a Mm. big one, too. Yeah, that's good. I I like that you you commented, you know, there is serious situations that are remarkably important. But, you know, a lot of the time, some of those smaller situations are just as important and to, to treat them with an equal amount of value. And I'm curious... So let's say we've we've recognized some of those things, that dysregulation, that up and down, some of those statements um, in somebody we love and care about, even just in, in somebody we know that we may see casually. What are your basic recommendations for somebody who notices things like that? What should they do for that person, first and foremost, when they hear or see something like that happening? Taking that supportive position is what is my first recommendation always. I think it's really easy. And again, I'm talking through the lens oftentimes of young people. It's really easy for adults sometimes to dismiss it and be like, what's wrong with you? Like, that's a really common response that you'll hear an adult say when when a kid is kind of all over the place. But instead, if the response is more like, hey, how can I help? Or I notice that things don't seem to be going real great for you right now, though, it, it opens up a door where they're willing to share what they're thinking, because it is hard as as a mental health professional, if we come into a situation, I'm not going to necessarily recommend very significantly high levels of treatment for somebody who just is feeling dysregulated. However, if you can open up the door and have those conversations, they might be willing to share more that's going on with them at that time that they might not have said to said to you otherwise. Yeah. So then when you take that supportive position, how do you know when you're interacting with somebody, like what what to do? In particular, when does a line get crossed and I, I know I need to call the hotline or I, I know I need to call the police? So those big risk factors that we talked about before, if somebody, certainly if somebody is talking about hurting themselves or hurting somebody else. So hotline and police could potentially be two different types of interventions. I would say the police intervention is you want to look at that, particularly when somebody is at risk right now, or there's no safety network in place for them right at the moment. Like you're on the phone with them having this conversation and nobody's there with them is a more important time to have the police involved versus if you're able to sit with them and have that conversation, it would be better then then a hotline intervention can be Mm -hmm. a better intervention at that point. But I would even point to that there's apps that can help you walk through this process because I think a lot of times when people do get into these circumstances, it's a little scary and it's easy to kind of forget like, 
I listened to this podcast once who tried to help me walk through this situation, right? And, yeah. and, yeah. <laughs> and it, it may not necessarily just draw right back up into your mind because it's mm. it if if you're not somebody who like me who deals with this every single day, right? It, it, these questions don't necessarily pop into your head. So um, there's actually one called a suicide prevention app that you could download and have available and it will guide you to ask some questions. And then even after you ask the questions, it will pop up with resources on Mm -hmm. where to go next. Another one that we use, actually we use it as professionals, but you don't need to be a professional to use it because we actually also use it in conjunction with our police partners is the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale, which I know is this huge kind of complicated name. Um, but it asks, it, it guides you to ask some fairly simple, direct um, questions. I actually have it pulled up here. It, it asks things like, have you thought about doing something to make yourself not alive anymore? So it'll, it'll give you those questions that you can ask. Um, and I always say, don't be afraid to use the word suicide, because for them, that might be very real at this moment. And you avoiding it actually just makes it a little harder for them to be honest about those feelings. Hmm. Yeah, it's strange that, and I don't want to say normalize because that sounds just a bit insensitive, but it is strange how just saying the word seems to maybe lessen the power because when it's secret and it's hidden and it's something that I'm thinking about, it, um, it becomes sort of shameful and something you're embarrassed to admit, something you don't want to tell anybody because you're curious and afraid of what will they think if I say this, you know, but in saying that to them, you communicate that, hey, it's okay, we can talk about this. And I don't want to have this conversation to to make you feel ashamed, to make mm-hmm. you feel guilty. But I just want to have this conversation because I care. And I want to be honest about it. And so using even that one word, just saying suicide can can really help open up that conversation, even though it's a tough one to have. That's a really valuable, that's a valuable piece. Absolutely. Um, so I think in, in my experience, the first, uh, one of the first times that, uh, that I encountered a student in crisis, I'll, I'll be honest, I did not handle it. It's like one of those memories where you're like, I, 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 in the end, I did the right things, uh, but I lost the relationship in the process mm. um, because I overreacted and reacted quickly I did the right things. We ended up having the police come and 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 do the things. But um, in the interpersonal interaction, do you have coaching for us? What what would what would you recommend we do to, I don't know, to build the trust on, on the front end of that, so that the person sees what you're doing as helpful versus sees what you're doing as controlling, restricting, demeaning, like those sorts of things. Like, oh, you're gonna force me to do this what do you do? How do you go about that conversation? Be like, Hey, you're, you're at risk. This is a safety thing. I care about you. What what kind of advice would you give in in that initial space to, to value the relationship, to value and humanize the person while you're also doing what you have to do to keep them safe? That terminology that you and Noah both used, um, as you responded here was, I care about you. Um, mm. I think that that is a really important message. And just even pausing for a second after you say that to allow that to sink in, because a lot mm. of times 
we can even be uncomfortable saying that, right? Because it may not be somebody who's super close to you, but yet you are with them at this moment that is extremely vulnerable and they are putting their trust in you. So expressing that same feeling back, like that I, I do care about you. I want to hear what's going on with you. And tell me a little bit more about how long you've been experiencing this. If you have any personal experience, as a professional, sometimes that's a dangerous line to cross, but I think as a human to human conversation, it's good to just validate like other people have found themselves in these circumstances. I've even had moments, right? And, And so we can get through this together. And that kind of conversation of togetherness to talk about it. People also like to know what's going to happen next. So if you can kind of explain the process before Mm. just taking action steps can also help people to understand because if, if they've had interactions with the mental health field in the past, sometimes they may not have been positive. So it's also good, I think, to ask those questions, like what scares you right now about taking these next steps Mm. and how could we help make that better? Bernie, I'm curious to know, and I know obviously it's a situation to situation um, judgment call, but I'm curious to know, do you have a recommendation of when we're supporting, when we, you know, empathize and let people talk and talk to them about it? Um, If there's a certain point where we say, okay, now in my head, we flip the switch and we start thinking, okay, now we need to start moving out of listening, supporting, and into maybe prompting, supporting of thinking about those future goals and those action steps? Yeah. Yes. I think that it's also great. So here would be, let me say most ideal, and then what you potentially may -hmm. have to deal with regardless. How about that? Most ideal would be that there's somebody else who can be involved and can be working Mm -hmm. on the action steps while Mm -hmm. you remain in a supportive posture. So that would be what is always most ideal if that's if you have the ability to have somebody else who's involved, who can be making the calls to police or a hotline or whatever, while you continue to have the conversation and keep the person engaged uh, through the process. Because even just walking away to make a hotline call can feel uncomfortable for somebody Mm, uh, because now you're talking about them instead of with them, right? And nobody really likes to be talked about. But If you find yourself in the circumstance where you're alone and you have to do it, I also then talk about what next steps are we going to do. So we're going to call the hotline next because I'm concerned for your safety and I need to get Mm -hmm. professional help involved at this point. Here's what typically happens when we're on a hotline call. What questions do you have about that? Would you like to make that call together? Because if they're able to even just call in and talk about what they're experiencing, that's super helpful for people like us Mm -hmm. who are responding Mm -hmm. on the other side and they feel involved in the process. And so I think that like walking people through the steps and talking about it at each step that you're doing, doing as much of it in their presence as possible, being with them as you do that. But if, if, if there's information that you feel like you need to disclose to a hotline, that's going to make them uncomfortable, then just tell them you'll, you know, I'm going to just make this call. I'll be back in five minutes can I get you something while you're waiting? Hmm. Bernie, I'm curious to know, best case scenario where we're able to make that call, what are you 
and the people on the other end. What's happening over there? What are you doing with the person on the phone? What are you doing with people who may may come in who are being assessed? Can you walk us kind of through your mindset in starting that process? Sure. There's a few different hotline options in the world that you can access, right? Ours in particular comes through what is called the CARES line. And the CARES line is an Illinois state-run phone line. So if you're calling the CARES line, then they are doing essentially what I call like a pre-screening. So most of the people who call the CARES line are either professionals reaching out for help to somebody else or like a family member or another support person who's involved in that person's life. It is not typically the individual who's experiencing the crisis. Now, if you call like the National Suicide Prevention Line or the text line, that's usually the person who's experiencing the crisis who's reaching out to one of those. And so then their response is different. They're intervening directly with the person. The CARES line who dispatches for us is more like a if you were to get your medical insurance to cover a surgery and they want to screen to make sure that you're meeting the criteria for the medical insurance, the CARES line is more like that for us. Hmm. Like they are seeing if you meet criteria for our crisis intervention services. And then they dispatch us. So this centralized CARES line takes the information down and then they contact our agency and then we get dispatched. We have 90 minutes to respond in person to the person in crisis, no matter where they're located in Kane or Kendall County. And then after we receive that call, we call back the person who originally made the call to let them know that we're coming and potentially ask a few questions, particularly during the time of COVID. We're going to ask things like, do you have access to a mask? Do we have a space that we can meet in that's safe? But we will also ask questions, particularly around like, is there access to weapons currently? Is the person okay right now? And so we do a little bit of a screening for ourselves when we first call. Then when we show up, we go through the full assessment process, uh, a crisis assessment that asks a whole lot of questions about what that person is experiencing and has been within the last month or so. It's really a short-term type assessment. It doesn't look at your long-term life. And then we link that person with what we think that they best need at that moment. So whether that's an inpatient hospitalization stay or if they need outpatient connections, we follow up and make that happen. Is that dif- different or s- similar to if, if you take someone to the emergency room or if the police come and pick someone up and take them to the emergency room? What, what are the similarities or differences? That's a pretty similar process. So if it's somebody who is eligible for our mobile crisis response services, mm-hmm. then we're still going to get dispatched by the emergency room or the police. They're just going to mm-hmm. be the ones who are calling in to make that happen. And the person will wait with either the police or at the emergency room until we mm-hmm. arrive. So pretty similar. Yeah. What is the the assessment composed of? What 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 are the what kinds of questions? Not that we need all uh, obviously it's a long assessment so I'm not, I'm not asking like <laughs> tell us all the questions you're going to ask. But what are the like what are we trying to discover? What what is the what is somebody going to experience going through that? We're particularly looking for risk factors and protective factors. Like if you just mm-hmm. wanted to boil it down to two general categories. So mm-hmm. risk factors, we're looking for things like obviously suicidality or homicidality, but also impulsivity, recent losses, 
things that are generally considered significant risk factors. And then in the protective factors, same kind of things. Who are the people in your life who are there to support you? Do you have Mm -hmm. access to transportation to get you to services after this? We're just looking at the strengths and supports that people have in their Mm -hmm. life. And then you put the two together to try to determine what level of service is going to best meet their needs forward. Well, as you're listening to our conversation with Bernie, maybe you're thinking about your own ministry and the hurting students around you. Helping those students find healing can be complicated, and wisdom like what we're hearing today about dealing with emergency situations can be incredibly helpful both as a leader and for your ministry. Most ministries have weekly programming, but not a way to care for hurting students specifically. And that is why Rally Point created the Regroup curriculum. Regroup is a program that equips ministry leaders who want to help hurting students. It is a simple, developmentally appropriate program written to help people work through difficult things like pain, addiction, and grief. So if you're a leader who wants to help hurting students in your ministry, but maybe doesn't feel prepared or is anxious about saying the wrong thing, we think Regroup can help. You can buy the program or learn more by visiting rallypointmen.com regroup. So one of the comments that we hear from our, our listeners, the majority of our listeners are people in ministry environments. So pastors and volunteers and parents and people who are, are connected to a, a church in some way. So there's a difference, like we talk about refer to the professionals and there's a reason that we refer to the professionals. I think sometimes the the misnomer is we refer to the professionals and then we kind of like wash our hands of the situation. <laughs> so help us to understand a little bit of what is the role of the ministry leader, the volunteer, the parent, the the teacher, whoever it is that's making this call, what is their role supposed to be throughout? And what is the role of the professional, the the system, the that sort of thing? So I think a lot of times people's biggest fear when they do state this vulnerability that they're feeling at risk of hurting themselves or hurting somebody else is that people are going to leave them behind. So the more that you can remain present with them in the process, they really appreciate that. And actually, we really appreciate that as the professionals as well, because you have the firsthand information that they disclosed. You Mm -hmm. have the relationship. They may not. Like as a crisis professional, I have to build a relationship with somebody in 10 minutes or less. (laughs) So they may not want to express things to me that they express to you who they've known pretty much their whole life. And so having that relationship is kind of key to be able to get somebody to the most appropriate supports. We find that if somebody remains available and is present for those conversations, that we're actually less likely to put somebody in the hospital than if if that person is just there on their own, because Mm. you being there is a protective factor. And that you're going to continue to support that person after the time of the crisis. Now, the particular questions and things that we might ask, we tend to look for their direct input first. And then Mm -hmm. we'll probably ask the support people who are also available a series of questions at the end. So remaining involved, I think, is it's... But we also know heart, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's time. Now, I said a 90-minute response time. You're going to be hanging out with that person potentially for up to 90 minutes until somebody like us can get to you to be involved. Mm-hmm. And the, and it's an intense 90 minutes, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're sitting with somebody yeah. who's really struggling. 
Yeah. 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 And then, I mean, the other, the other things that I think are really important for, for these supportive people to realize is, um, you know, that it is just as scary for the person going through it. I mean, it's scarier for them. They are the most scared. And they're the most uncertain and they're the ones who feel the least, yeah, like the least comfortable. That's not even the right word. Like they're the ones who are just in all of this turmoil. Mm. And so to be there, even just as a steady influence who's who's present, it, it's important in the moment to be the one who's grounded. It's also important like long term. Like you've been there, like you mentioned, we've known you for a long time before and we're going to know you after this. And so there's some kinds of messaging that I think is really important in that process that this experience, I, I, I'm seeing you in this really vulnerable space, and it's really important to, to send across a message, this isn't the end of our relationship. Mm. Like you being in, a, in this position doesn't make drive me away. And so uh, I think it's really critical for somebody in a crisis to realize I didn't frighten anybody away. Like the worst possible thing that I that I imagined happening didn't result in rejection. And so kind of sending that like longer term message is something that like the crisis intervention team is is there for the crisis, for the acute yeah. crisis. And we are there for the long term relationship and the, the ongoing support. So I think really important thing for us to to make sure we kind of, like if they're going to go to inpatient or, or hospitalization, we need to make sure that they have that message going in as well. And I think you do that when you sit there for the full 90 minutes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and then through the yeah. questions. And you give them a hug, uh, you know, appropriately uh, or whatever, like the comforting way to say like, hey, I still am here for you when they uh, have whatever intervention kind of going forward. So when we're talking about a lot of these things, these have to do with, mental illnesses a lot a lot of times right the, the reason you make this call is maybe it's there's a social issue that has launched it maybe they, a loss a grief a, a breakup a thing a lot of times launches a lot of these crises but there's also like these mental health parts of this so well let me let me say you know you guys are licensed professionals you know the terms you know the plans and you know bernie this is your job bob you've you've done this done this a lot and i'm just curious you know for our audience, the the average person, you know, being in this situation, it's not a constant thing. So it's it can be overwhelming, it can be frightening. And so after this experience, what do they need to know about how to receive a person back after they've after they've been through this? After we've sat with them for those ninety minutes, we've made the call, they've been assessed on the front end, are trying to reassure them that we're going to be here for you, we're going to support you um, in the future. But once that future comes, they come back. And we're both on the other side of this experience. What what do we do? I'm actually really glad you asked that because I think as a crisis professional, like this is a big difference between if somebody lands themselves back into a crisis situation or they don't. Is the ongoing support that happens on the back end. So that being able to accept somebody back into their community, into their natural support systems to be with the people that they've known and leaned on for years and know that they can still be with those people and lean on them for years to come despite having this experience together. Most of us are afraid of judgment in the world, right? Like we're afraid of people thinking differently about us because of whatever experience, whether it's a mental health issue that's involved or just the fact that you've struggled with something else in your life. It's so having that connection back 
to your community, being welcomed with open arms, but without it being like a huge ordeal, right? Like, so I think it's also easy to have this feeling of, I want to celebrate your return because we do, we do want to celebrate your return, but we also don't make mm. the, want to make them feel like they're a spectacle. So having that connection where you just invite them back in with open arms, I'm so mm. glad to see you. We're happy to have you back and mm. being a part of our community. And then also I think having potentially on the side, one-on-one conversations mm-hmm. about what they want to share and what they don't want to share. Mm-hmm. We have to be careful to not expose this for somebody, so to speak. Mm-hmm. They have to want to give information about their mm-hmm. experiences or not, right? Maybe they don't want to say mm-hmm. anything and that's okay too. I, I think just that, again, mm-hmm. supportive presence, ask them what they want, having a side conversation about are there, are there other ways I can support yeah. you? I've been yeah. thinking about you. Bernie, when we, when we, you know, are trying to support them when they come back into this community, I don't think anybody will forget an experience like that. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it, it, you know, yeah. changes, um, you know, the way you may um, operate daily because you care about this person. And so you just want to make sure they're okay. You want to make sure they're safe. And so what are some of the factors that help, you know, um, you know, a week, a month, a year out from this situation, that that person is recovering well, that that person is safe? What are some of those things we can look for that we can say, okay, this is happening. I know that this person is recovering and safe. That's also a fantastic question because the level of suicidality stays significantly high within that first 30 days. Hmm. So being able to touch base with somebody pretty frequently during that time, a lot of it is going to be looking for similar things that we talked about earlier. Are they making those passive statements? Hmm. Are they isolating much more significantly? Like if they're not coming back to groups that they were typically involved in with you, or if they're not leaving their house, I know this is weird during quarantine time, like Mm -hmm. the world isn't necessarily leaving their house in the same way, Mm -hmm. but sometimes that even means not leaving your room, right? Mm -hmm. Some people won't even leave their bed. And so those are the things that we need to check in with people and make sure that they're doing okay. Most people really appreciate you just reaching out to them on a regular basis, asking how they're doing, you know, asking Mm -hmm. if there's anything else that you can do to support them during the time. That's good. And and you mentioned quarantine right now. And I'm, I'm just thinking about, yeah, how many people and we did a we did an episode on the holidays and loneliness recently, and and I'm just thinking about how many people over the course of quarantine have been in their apartment, in their bed, maybe going out for groceries, and just the difference that reaching out and saying hi and saying how are you doing even makes now, when people are just operating, you know, not at a, not at a crisis level, but I can't even imagine the difference it makes if if they've been through that difficult experience, and it seems like such a simple gesture you know, a 30 second thing, you know, a, a 10 or 15 minute call, but it really can make all the difference in the world. And just kind of jumping off of that, Bernie, you've, you've mentioned it before in this podcast, but right now, I mean, when, when maybe somebody we know isn't in that crisis situation, but we just want to build a community that fosters that love and support before we get to that point. So if somebody is having those feelings, where we do start recognizing something like that, they feel comfortable enough to talk about it. 
this sounds so cliche, but sometimes I want to say, just be nice. <laughs> but but, but uh, there's, there's a lot of that. I think just making yourself open and available, listening without judgment. Um, I hear, you know, uh, today the term Karen is used a lot, right? Like, don't be a Karen. But this concept that you're... A lot of us like to tell other people what they should or shouldn't do. And that's that's a dangerous space to enter into sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's just allowing people to be who they are and allowing that to be mm-hmm. a comfortable like response to you, right? Mm-hmm. So you are willing to accept them for who they are. You're understanding that their anxiety mm-hmm. might be higher than yours. That's okay or lower than yours, and that's okay. They may have none, and they may think like all of this is nothing, and that's okay because that's the space that they're in. Hmm. They might be super afraid Hmm. and not want to leave their house at all, and that's okay because it's the space that they're in right now. And I think just being present and available and not passing judgment, be nice, I think really helps Hmm. a lot during these really challenging times. Yeah, I, I think um, one of the things I learned over the years is that every kid is super unique. And so uh, we have the tendency, especially when we work with groups, to kind of put people in a, like a, a generalized box. Like, oh, all the kids think this or they're feeling this. And so there has to be this thing where we allow some space for kids to be unique, for this kid to like this one thing and this other kid to be into that and this kid to seem like they they need to talk more, this kid to not. And I think as a as a, somebody who's who's trying to help or in, in, in ministry to do that, when we allow people to be individuals, we start to build that trust. When we allow them to just be them and we in, invite them to be themselves and we give space for like, hey, you're a weirdo, I'm a weirdo, we're all kind of weirdos and... Um, that's what makes us cool together is there is no other group like our group. There is no other, and you're a part of it. You're what makes us unique. And I think that helps give space for that trust building because I think I think when we build that container of safety, all of a sudden there are opportunities for trustworthy con- kinds of conversations uh, that are really that are really critical. Bernie, as we kind of wind down, it's it's interesting because we're talking about this like collaboration in a way between the the system or like like there's this mystery the shroud part of the reason we are so excited to have you is because we want to take that shroud down like it's humans on both sides and there's not like the professionals are not strangers or like people in in suits with sunglasses or they're not like <laughs> they're like humans who are <laughs> Uh, we're trained with a certain set of <laughs> systems that have been learned over a long period of time, and it's the best we have. But there, it, it's humans on both sides. So, uh, what I'd love to end with is just if you were to give a couple of pieces of advice from the professional side to the volunteer, the pastor, the ministry leader, the parent, what what would be those kind of? Here's what I want you to take away. So I know we're talking about crisis today, but you don't have to wait for a crisis to be able to get assistance. Over 50% of the people who come into our services, so skip crisis services, ignore those, to any of our services, do so after a really significant crisis. 
So we would really love to see people before they get to that place. So reaching out for assistance prior to feeling Mm. like it's an overwhelming Mm. crisis would be really my, it's my biggest piece of advice is to intervene early. That's the best protective factor that anybody Mm. can have is early intervention in the Mm. situation. And then talking about in a crisis situation, I, I think getting professionals involved is never a wrong answer. Having people who you can, you know, get connected to, to be able to get that support. There's a lot of fear that anytime the professionals are called, that hospitalization is going to be the next step. And people don't want that. I will tell you personally, from our agency's perspective, we do not hospitalize as much as we connect people with remote Hmm. supports. Our actual goal in our crisis program is to help people feel safe and healthy in their home, school, and community Mm. environments. And so we try to connect them with their natural support systems and with professional support systems because they probably need that additional layer Mm. at this moment with the hopes to be able to eventually pull away the professional support systems and return to your natural support systems, which is which is the audience we're talking to today, right? Your natural support system. So our goal is to return them Mm. to you. So I think that fear of hospitalization shouldn't stop people from getting help. And then um, my third, I guess, piece of advice is maybe more praise than advice, but like kudos to you for Mm. being willing to have this conversation with people and be willing to support them through these difficult times. Don't be afraid to ask the questions. I know it's scary when you're involved in it. However, you're going to truly impact another Mm. person's life in a way that you don't get the opportunity to all the time. It's truly a blessing, I think, to be in a career like ours, that people are willing to share all these vulnerable parts of their life with you on a regular basis. And your audience gets that same blessing is that people are willing to share these pieces of their life. And so taking that as a as a huge blessing, but also Mm. a responsibility and that we have to act and support. Hmm. Well, Bernie, you have been such a blessing to have on today as well. What you do is so remarkably difficult, but so remarkably valuable. And we're so grateful for the fact that you've given your your time and, and energy and, you know, 20 years to it. And we appreciate all your wisdom. And it, it was a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you. Wow, uh, there's a lot of good stuff in today's episode. I think one of the things that is striking about Bernie and and actually just about what she represents I, that I am kind of feeling grateful for right now is the fact that in our country there is a system like this, that there are safety measures and there are people like Bernie who have our backs and are out there able to support us, that in most areas of the country there is a a support system, a response system that's able to help us out. I'm grateful. Like I, I know one of the things that's been really helpful in the work that I've done both in ministry and in counseling is the crisis text line. You just text 741741 and you get connected with a trained person that helps you walk through a crisis and the National Suicide Hotline, which is 800-273-8255. And just the fact that, that those systems exist to help provide confidential support for people in distress, to help prevent things and help with responses to crisis for us and the people that we love. Yeah, what I really appreciate about Bernie is how 
holistic she is. You know, I mean, she's got advice for the person at home who's never dealt with this. She's training and raising up people to be experts on this. She's an expert herself. And her desire is, you know, one, to build those healthy communities where hopefully people feel supported and can have conversations about this before it even becomes a crisis situation. But then she's also willing to step into those crisis situations. So across the board, she really wants to impact the lives of people to support them. And, you know, that's really on our hearts too. That's why we had this episode today. And we wanted to be one of those people who equip you to be able to speak into the lives and um, intervene if a crisis situation comes up. So we have something for you that we'd like to give you today. It's a safety plan that any leader can use with another person who's dealing with a difficult situation. And you can either use it as a conversation guide or you can take it out and walk through this safety plan with that person right there and then together. Yeah, to get that safety plan, you can go to rallypointmen.com slash podcast and subscribe with your email. You'll get a link where you can download the safety plan and you can get other resources there that we've created just for you and ministry leaders. And if you like what you heard today, please rate or review this podcast. By doing that, you can empower other leaders with some of these tools that can help them support others. And also, we would love to hear from you. So we'd love to know how this episode has helped you out or what challenges you are facing in your environment that we could cover next. So if you'd like to contact us, you can email us at hello at rallypointmen.com. Thank you so much for listening.